Father, it is our delight to, re- to be reminded that you are a God of mercy who listens to the cry of your people. We are a people who are in constant need of mercy. We are a people who, because of our, our, uh, the, the sin that we have chosen, we have uh, done such damage to our souls and damage to, our, to those around us. And so, oh God, we, we cry out for mercy. We, we take great pleasure in knowing that you are good and that your mercy endures forever. If thou shouldst mark iniquities, who among us could stand? None of us. None of us, O oh God. It is, it is because of who you are and, your, and for your righteousness' sake that any of us are forgiven. We have found our refuge in you, in you and what you've done in Christ. We, we offer no merit. We offer only sin. We bring no justification for our deeds, O oh God. We, we, we have no excuses. But we come as those who have been born anew. We come once again to plead for mercy. It's needy people, O oh God. It's needy people who know that mercy is their constant need. Our Father, we do celebrate the, um, the joy of living in a country where freedoms is, is synonymous with our very name. We are, a, we are a people who enjoy rich freedom. And yet, oh God, it's a freedom that's been abused. It's a freedom that has, that has created all kinds of chaos morally. We now are even being told by the highest court in our land that sodomy is not something that we are to ever frown upon again. Oh God, have mercy on this land. She was a land born with the hopes that you would be enthroned, and yet all those hopes have vanished. In fact, oh God, we have in many ways become uh, a great nation of scoffers. Oh God, have mercy on us and use the church of Jesus Christ, the church in this city, of which there are so many good ones, might we all unite to declare that we, we believe in the triune God and in the work that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. We are a people, a remnant, that want to stay faithful to the God who has saved us in Christ. Now, Father, heal our land. Might uh, we be at the vanguard of leading this nation to her knees in repentance. But we, O oh God, want to see you pour out revival upon us. Our Father, we thank you for the, uh, the trips that have been completed successfully just this week. The junior high, the senior high, those students are back and safe and, and changed and molded. And we thank you. We pray for the same kind of molding this week. Lord, we believe that young children will be confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ, perhaps for the first time, and some will embrace the Savior this week. Do that, O oh God. Not because we want to, to count heads, but we long to see the kingdom of Christ Jesus expanded. Do that among us, O oh God. Might our efforts be crowned with your, with your redemptive purposes in the lives of children. O oh God, um, I pray for the people among our congregation who are ill and have just discovered this week that they're more ill than they thought. I 
pray, O oh God, that you will remind them that nothing has assaulted heaven without your permission, that you have not been knocked off of your throne, and that you're not pacing the quarters of heaven, wringing your hands. I pray that we might find great solace in your sovereignty and in your goodness. Now, Father, we come to a portion of our worship service where, where so many people are made uncomfortable. They're made uncomfortable for many of the wrong reasons. Father, every dollar we have in our pocket or in our checkbook or in our CDs, it's all dollars that you provided. And should you see fit, you can blow it, blow it away tomorrow. And so now we get the privilege of making a statement with our money. We can make a statement that we trust you about our financial future and that we are willing as a people to sacrifice for Jesus Christ to be honored and glorified. So, Father, here it is. The amount of our willingness is represented. The, 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 the nature of our, or the expansion of the size of our hearts is also expressed here, Father. Might we be able to look into heaven and be pleased with what we're expressing now? And then, Father, for every dime that goes, in, it goes into these plates, might it be used very sacredly and soberly as we seek to bring about the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray, of course. In his name, amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me. Back to the book of Acts. Back to uh, Acts chapter 13. And you follow as I read uh, from the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 at verse 1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them. They sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. A false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at, intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, 
And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. The, um, the second half of the book of Acts is generally considered to begin at 13.1. The, the book uh, really takes on a whole new theme from 13.1 forward. It's really, uh, the rest of the book, through the, from here to the end, really is dominated with uh, the travels of Paul, the missionary journeys of Paul. In, in primarily, it's, it's a record of the expansion of the church through the missionary journeys of Paul and his, and his buddies. Now, as I studied this passage, these 12 verses... Uh, what, what kind of stood out to me was that there were, there were basically three levels of information that could occupy our time. And, and, and none of it is unimportant. I would dare not call anything in this book unimportant. But I would say that there are things in this story that are more important than other things. Kind of, you, you can look at it or view it as kind of tiers or levels of importance. Let me try to illustrate, and then and we're going to close um, with the, the, the bulk of our time spent on what I feel like is the, 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 the information that is the, of greatest significance and greatest importance in this story. But the bottom tier, the lowest tier of, um, of importance are things like um, the, the location of these cities. You've got three cities that are mentioned there, Seleucia, Salamis, and Paphos. Um, and then you've got the history of Cyprus that could, uh, could interest you. I mean, why go there? In your first missionary journey overseas, why go to Cyprus? What was it about Cyprus that was so uh, enticing to Paul and Barnabas? Um, and then the, the, the term proconsul that is found in verse 7 and in verse 12, you can't imagine how much... Um, Ink is spilled over discussion of that word, proconsul. Uh, apparently, uh, the, the use of the term demonstrates what a reliable historian is the author of Acts, who, by the way, is Luke. Luke is the author. And, and by using this term, it demonstrates how, how, um, how, how well he knew the facts and how well he knew the, uh, the, 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 the government of the day. So, Amazingly, there is just a lot written on stuff like that. And we could, you know, I could tell you a whole lot about Cyprus. I back to you pay me to wade through some of that information for you. So I did. But if you want to know about the location of these things, we can do that. However, it seems that we would not use our time as wisely if, as if we would spend it on something else. So that's the kind of the bottom tier of, of information in this story of, of items of importance. The tier above that includes some other things. Uh, again, more important than the, the lowest tier, but uh, not, not the most important in this text, in my, in my judgment. But in this middle tier of, um, of Im- items of importance, you have things, for instance, like uh, the identity of these five men that are listed there in uh, verse 1. 
The, uh, the other thing that you have uh, in this tier is the, um, the event that resulted in Saul and Barnabas being set aside and sent off. Um, and then another thing that I would locate in this second middle tier of importance is something found in verse 9 where Saul gets a name change. His name is now Paul. Well, let me, let me comment a little bit further on those items. First of all, this identity of these five people. D- did you notice in verse 1 that they are identified as prophets and teachers? That is, there's a difference between those two. Who's who? Who's a prophet? Who's a teacher in that bunch? We're not told. But uh, that's an interesting item, um, at least to me. Uh, and then you, the, the, the five men are listed. We know who number one is, Barnabas. We know who number five is, Saul. But it's those middle three guys we don't know much about. There's one called Simeon, who was given a Latin nickname of Niger, uh, most probably because he was a black African. Uh, there is widespread agreement that uh, the Simeon that is mentioned there is the Simon who carried the cross of Luke, uh, carried the cross of Jesus Christ that's mentioned in Luke uh, chapter 23. Remember the Simon that carried Jesus' cry, uh, cross? Well, that's probably the man who is mentioned here. And then there's Lucius. Is, is Luke referring to himself? Probably not. This is another man. Uh, we know very little about him. And then there's this man, Manian, who we're told was brought up in the same household, kind of a foster brother kind of relationship, with Herod. And that's the Herod that uh, murdered John the Baptist. Do you remember? He also conducted the trial of Jesus Christ. And here, out of the same household, uh, one murderer springs up. And out of the same household, Manian comes, who is a lover of Christ. Interesting collection of people. And one thing that I think you can say about that list of people is that there is enormous, a, a very beautiful um, um, diversity that is that is true about the church at the at, at our earliest history, even at leadership levels, there is all kind of ethnic and cultural diversity. In that group of five men, ladies and gentlemen, you find Jews and Gentiles, you find blacks and whites, you find royalty and laity, you find a various uh, group, uh, gift mix, and and it just is a a different picture than what we get of the average evangelical church where there's so much homogeneity. Gang, um, at, the ch- at the very earliest, the church was comprised of a marvelous diversity. Have you ever heard this little item that the most segregated hour in all of, the, uh, of America is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings? The most segregated hour when the whites go their way and the blacks go their way is 11 o'clock. And, and what, what's going on then? Well, that's when the church gets together. Well, gang, that kind of segregation is not, um, it wasn't true of the early church. That has been our idea. We're the ones that have done that. Because in this church, what you find is a marvelous illustration of the diversity that existed uh, in the early church. Now, th- the other item in this middle tier of importance uh, has to do with this event that resulted in Paul and uh, in Saul and Barnabas being set aside um, and shipped off for their first missionary journey. If you'll notice, if you look at verse two, we're told as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. 
Now, what are they doing? Well, um, it's pretty easy to conclude that they're engaged in some kind of worship service. Who's there? We don't know. Is it a big group or is it just the five of them? We don't know. But we do know that these people are engaged in the act of worship. And while this body of believers is engaged in worship, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and makes his will known to them. Now, how did he speak? Was there an audible voice? Probably not, but it could be. Um, but he does make his will known, probably through the, uh, the, the voice of one spokesman. And that one spokesman is not identified um, because that's the Holy Spirit's way. He, he never draws attention to a personality. He always obscures the instrument that he uses. But through the voice of this one uh, member of this body, the will of God is made known and is agreed upon. And then what excites me even perhaps more than that is the very next word in verse 3. Then. That is, once the mind of God is known among these believers, the immediate response to knowing that is obedience. Um, almost... Almost as beautiful as the Holy Spirit speaking is the church's response of a quick, ready, immediate, complete obedience. Here is a group of people who had put themselves at the disposal of the Holy Spirit. And once he spoke, once his will was made known, (coughs) no reservations. No hesitations, nothing to slow them down. Our only option is obedience. One of the outcomes of their worship is a readiness to obey. So the worshipers who made up this worship service, when they came to this worship service, they were focused on discovering the will of God and being obedient to that. They didn't come to the worship service trying to critique which hymns were sung and exactly how. They came eager to find out the mind of God and then for heaven's sakes, go do that. Is that why you came this morning? Did you come with, a, with a, a willingness to put yourself at the disposal of the Holy Spirit and once he speaks, to go do it? I hope so. I hope that's why you came. I hope you came to be critiqued instead of critique. Gang, worship is not something that invites us to be a judge. It's something that invites us to be a performer. I've said that a thousand times and I'll say it another thousand. Guys, we're the performers. You're not the audience. You're the performers. Oh, there is an audience. But it isn't you. 
You're, you're, you're not the audience. The audience is in heaven. And it's comprised of one. And the audience is watching. And he's watching us perform. Why did you come today? Did you come to perform before him? Because what you find in this event, ladies and gentlemen, is a group of people who gather to worship God, listen for his voice, and then go do it. Whatever it was. I love that. I love that about the pristine purity of the early church and her worship. She is not engaged and caught up in worship wars that demands and consumes so much of the church's time in the 21st century. It's pretty simple. They came to worship God and listen for his voice and then go do it. Pretty simple, huh? Well, that's what worship is, ladies and gentlemen. We, the performers, gather together in the presence of the audience of one, listen to what he has to say, and then respond in obedience. There's um, one other thing that I want you to see at level two here, and it's this name change of Saul. Um, He gets his new name in 13.9. Paul. And I think you all knew that. That is, Saul and Paul were the same guy. But here's, here's where his name gets changed. And never again in the book of Acts does Luke call him Saul. It's kind of exciting to me. Here's a man who is probably somewhere around 45 years old. And at age 45, he's getting launched. The career for which he had been prepared through numerous experiences and all kinds of education and all kinds of instruction and all kinds of events and all kinds of experiences, that that career now begins. Paul is on his way out to go do what God had prepared him for all of his life. You know, I wonder sometimes if there might be another Paul seated in our midst. Somebody who is about to be um, launched. God having prepared you for whatever it is that, that he's up to, and he's ready to launch you. Boy, wouldn't that be neat. But that's what you find here. The name of Saul now is Paul. Now, I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that all of that up to this point is incidental. Now, don't misunderstand me. Again, I would never dream of calling anything in the Bible unimportant. I'm not doing that. But I am saying there's something here in this text that I think is the the meat and the potatoes of the text. You know, I, I used to say it's the guts of the text, and then my wife got on to me. So I've changed it to the meat and the potatoes of the text. So that's a little bit more uh, acceptable to the um, to, to sensitive ears. So, but the real heart of the matter is found someplace else, I think. And it's found in verses 4 and in verse 9. And I want you to look at those verses with me. Just concentrate on those two as what I consider to be the, the third level, the third tier of utmost importance in this story. It's in verse 4 where we're told, So... As a result of that worship service, having heard the voice of God, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. There they go. That's part of it. 
Here's the other half. In verse 9, then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, put those two things together. That is, being sent and being filled with the Holy Spirit produces enormous usefulness. Being sent and being filled. Now, what do you find in this story is true of those people who are first sent and also filled? What do you find is true about them? Well, the first thing that you'll notice, that the, uh, perhaps the first thing that happens to them, or one of the first things that happened to them on this very first missionary journey on foreign soil, is that they run into the devil. <laughs> you know, do you remember, do you remember the, the experience of Jesus Christ uh, when he was baptized by John the Baptist and the heavens opened up and God says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And Do you remember what happened the very next item? He's out in the wilderness confronting the devil. He is equipped by the outpouring of this descending of a dove on him. And immediately, he runs into the devil. Just like Saul here. They run into a man by the name of Bar-Jesus. And his name is also uh, translated in verse 8, Elymas. He's kind of a court wizard, a, um, a sorcerer dabbling in the occult. And we're told he's a Jew. What a strange mixture of truth and lie. He begins in the truth, and he makes it to the position of a lie. Um, he started in the truth and ends in a, in a falsehood. It reminded me of uh, uh, astrology and astronomy, or astronomy and astrology. Astronomy is a wonderful science. Astrology, ladies and gentlemen, astrology is one of those instruments of falsehood. Why would we ever dabble in that? Astronomy, a wonderful thing. Astrology of the devil. Gang, um, but Steve Brown is one who said that the devil will use 99% truth to float 1% of a lie. Well, here's a man who started in Judaism and where he had some real wonderful truth underneath him, ended up uh, in the occult. His name is Bar-Jesus or Elymas. That's the first thing that people who are sent and filled confront. Uh, opposition from the devil. The second thing that I want you to notice about them is that people who are sent and filled are great lovers of the truth. Do you notice these words that Saul, let's call him Paul from here on, it's easier. Do you notice these words that Paul uh, used to speak to Bar-Jesus, beginning in verse 10? Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Oh, my goodness, Paul. Scorching words. And by the way, they're not said about him. They're said to him, to his face. And, and, and through these, he calls him Diabolos, the devil. He is denounced. He is judged by Paul. Whatever Paul, whatever evokes such a fiery outburst. Before I answer that question, I want to tell you a story that I've told before and I love to tell it. 
I love to tell this story. I, I, to me, it, it says volumes. But it's a story about Donald Gray Barnhouse. You ever heard that name? He was the pastor. He's dead now. But um, he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. A great church in Philadelphia. Where James Boyce was. You know the name James Boyce. Well, James Boyce followed uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Well, uh, James Boyce has since died as well. But, um, but two years ago, on Wednesday nights, at their, at their uh, time of their, their service on Wednesday nights, Donald Gray Barnhouse taught the scriptures. And after Wednesday night uh, Bible teaching, he offered a period of questions and answers from the audience. He would teach the Bible, and at the end, he would offer this period of questions and answers. And so one night... Uh, after having taught, he opened the floor for questions, and one lady raised her hand and, um, and said this to Dr. Barnhouse. She said, Dr. Barnhouse, I, I attend a church where the pastor doesn't believe the Bible. He doesn't believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection, and he makes all kinds of fun of the Bible and takes great delight in, um, in showing us what he says are contradictions in the Bible. What should I do? And the story goes that uh, Barnhouse had his glasses on and he took his glasses off and laid them down and he grabbed a hold of the pulpit and leaned across over the pulpit and he looked at this woman and he said, Madam, you should pray that he dies. Over the line? Um, a little bit improper? Well, I'll let you figure that out, ladies and gentlemen, but let me tell you this much. What was at stake at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia that night was the same thing that was at stake in this story in Acts chapter 13. What is it that's at stake? Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Initially, what's at stake is the truth. But ultimately, what is at stake is the souls of men. The battle that is drawn here, ladies and gentlemen, is a battle for truth. And you have these wonderful, almost this great uh, drama that unfolds. And on one side of the battle is a man who has been sent by and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. On the other side is a servant of the devil. And the, the, the stakes our Sergius Paulus. And, and in the midst of that battle, ladies and gentlemen, somebody who is sent by the Holy Spirit and filled by the Holy Spirit speaks scorching words. Scorching words about the truth. Look at what he says. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. How do you think he said that? You son of the devil. I mean, I don't think so. Here's a man that's fire-breathing. And the issue is the truth. Which in and of itself, ladies and gentlemen, is, a, is not a very popular notion in our day in the postmodern culture that you and I live in. You know, um, we're told that truth doesn't even exist, which is so unbelievable. It's, we want truth in every part of our lives. We want to know truth uh, in, in science. We want to know truth in medicine. We want to know truth in history. We want to know truth in accounting. We want to know truth. But when it comes to morality and religion, we say there is no truth. 
Pluralism tells me that I have no more of the truth than a sincere Muslim. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you go tell Paul that. You go tell him that he's got no more of the truth than a sincere Muslim. Well, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, either I am right or the Muslim is right, but we're both not right. One of us is wrong. And I say to you, it is not intolerant. It is not uh, unkind to denounce and proclaim Islam as a cult. My, uh, my culture, um, relativism, tells me that Christianity is only my opinion. And my opinion is no better than the next man's. Well, I say to you again, go tell Paul that. Go tell Paul. Well, Paul, that's often us. That's just your opinion. I mean, yeah, you can respond like that, ladies and gentlemen. But somebody's wrong. Liberalism tells me that Christianity is the religion of the oppressor. That's a good Karl Marx idea. But what I see taking place here is the Apostle Paul trying to use the truth of Christianity to set one who is oppressed free. Sergius Paulus is a Roman pagan. And we're told very interestingly, in verse 7... He's called an intelligent man, at least in my translation. The, the Greek word is suneto, and, and, it, and it has this idea. The man is a thinker. He, he wants to know the truth. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing in the world that the devil dreads more than a man who dares to think. You know, back in the, uh, when the, the age of the Enlightenment, the 18th century Enlightenment, there was a motto. I, I think it was pinned by Immanuel Kant. And I'm not sure I can pronounce it. It's a Latin phrase. Um, uh, Sapero Dei. And what it meant was, dare to be wise. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, dare it. Dare to find the truth. Sergius Paulus was... And I'm, my, my, my primary point, ladies and gentlemen, is to suggest to you that people who are sent by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit are people who love the truth. And when it's at stake, they breathe smoke. And then there's Elimus, Bar-Jesus, a Jew. What in the world is a Jew doing dabbling in the occult? Well, they've done it for years, ladies and gentlemen. They did it all through the the Old Testament. They're called false prophets. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, nobody, nobody received more stern words than false prophets. This is a statement by Jeremiah. Um, The wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. And on and on he goes. They have healed the hurt of my daughter, uh, my daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, 
They shall fall among those who fall in the time of their punishment. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Who's that addressed to? That's addressed to false prophets. There's this interesting story. In fact, there's only a... I can only think of two. There may be another a, a, a story like this in the Old Testament. The, the one story is found in the book of Job. Remember when this is taking place in the life of Job? And then uh, as the story unfolds, you get a glimpse of what's taking place in heaven. Remember that? Well, there's another one of those. And I can only think of two. There may be another one. But the, the, another place where that same kind of thing happens is in Second Chronicles chapter, uh, chapter 18. It's a funny little story about Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Ahab is the, the king of the northern kingdom and Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And Ahab invites Jehoshaphat up to his kingdom to try and convince him to go to battle at Ramoth Gilead. Remember that story? Jehoshaphat comes up with all his, uh, you know, his pomp and circumstance and he comes to see Ahab. And um, uh, they're asking all the false prophets whether they should go battle Ramoth Gilead. And all the false prophets say, yeah, yeah, you go, you're going to beat them. And then Jehoshaphat looks at Ahaz, Ahab and says, uh, is there not a prophet of the Lord in your midst? And Ahab says, yeah, there's one, but I hate him. I hate him because he never says anything nice about me. Well, come on, Ahab, let's, let's, let's go get him. His name's Micaiah. And they go to get him. Micaiah says, oh, yeah, y'all go ahead. Y'all go. He very sarcastically, y'all go ahead. Y'all going to win? And Ahab says, tell us the truth. And he says, all right, I'll tell you the truth. You're going to die. You're going to die, Ahab. You're going to go out there, Ramoth Gilead, and they're going to slaughter you. And Ahab looks at Jehoshaphat and says, see, I told you he didn't say everything nice about me. Well, and while that's going on, the story suddenly shifts, and the location is now heaven. And uh, God is holding this meeting and says, who can I get to go and prompt Ahab to go battle Ramoth Gilead so I can kill him? Everybody's got suggestions, and then one angel steps forward and says, I know how I can do it. I'll tell you how to do it, God. It's pretty simple. All I will need to do is go be a lying word in the mouth of the prophets. God says, that's it. Go do it. Here's what I'll be. I'll be a lying word in the mouth of their prophets. And as a result, Jehoshaphat was slaughtered. Because that's what's at stake, ladies and gentlemen. Initially, truth is at stake. But what's really at stake is the souls of men. Anybody who's been sent by and filled with the Holy Spirit knows that. And by the way, Jesus is no nicer. You know, Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild who wouldn't hurt a little child. Well, you need to take that little aphorism and, and, and spread it upon Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounces eight woes, and not one of them is pronounced against the sinning man. It's not like he says, woe to you adulterers, woe to you murderers, woe to you homosexuals, none of that. Eight woes, and all eight of them are directed at false prophets and blind guides. The sternest words Jesus has are reserved for men who stand between God and others who want the truth. Elymas was standing in the way of a man who wanted the truth. And Paul 
poison with his words. Oh, calm down, Jimmy. Calm down. You know what? Maybe I should be told that from time to time. Particularly if the issue is somebody's disagreement with me. If the issue is somebody disagrees with my position and I'm smoking, I ought to be told to calm down. But there should be no end to my blaze. If the issue is truth. Because ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, what is really at stake is the souls of men. Now, why does God want me to know this? I mean, why does he want us to know this? I want to leave you with three reasons why knowing this is profitable. The first reason he wants you to know this is this. It's important for us, ladies and gentlemen, to remember that any time anyone goes anywhere to do anything to honor Jesus Christ, opposition will very quickly raise its ugly head. In the life of Jesus, it was the devil. For Paul, it was one of his representatives. I don't think you and I are important enough to have the, have the devil himself show up, but he's got plenty of people who wants to do his own, to do his bidding. In fact, some of them may even come out of our own families. I want to do this. No, no, darling, don't do that. I want to go there. No, no, darling, don't do that. I want to start there. Oh, darling, don't do that. Guys, it's important for us to remember that any time anyone goes anywhere to do anything in the name of Jesus Christ, opposition will meet him pretty doggone quickly. Ask anybody around here who started. Talk to Donna Bird about song builders. Talk to anybody who started a grace group. And they'll tell you that Satan will see to it that opposition will arise. Gang, it is the nature of God's kingdom on earth to be opposed. That's the first reason he wants you to know this. The second reason has to do with the scent and filled business. As I said earlier, scent plus filled equals usefulness. But may I say, people who are sent by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit never back away from the truth. Because there are people who realize that what is it really in, uh, what really is at stake is the eternity of men. Gang, to back away from the truth is to back away from Jesus Christ because He is the truth, and to back away from Jesus Christ will have eternal consequences for us and for others. People who are sent by and filled with the Holy Spirit, love. They love to represent the truth. My friend, some of you are seated here today and you are banking your eternities on something that you think is true. Is it?
Is it the truth that you're banking your eternity on? Or did you just kind of make it up yourself? Because, my friend, if you think for one second that you can be good enough and work hard enough and be a good enough performer that God will let you into heaven based on your performance. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud. You're full of deceit. You've been deceived. Someone has defrauded you. People who are filled by the Holy Spirit love the truth because they know that the soul of Sergius Paulus is at stake. So are ours. And then finally, the last reason that God wants you to know this is to encourage you to launch your own missionary journey. Guys, the places will be different. The names will be different. But everything that was available to Paul is available to you and me. Here's what we need to do. While engaged in worship, whether private or corporate, we beg God to lead us. And then once he has, we beg him again for his fullness. And then full speed ahead. Because the gates of hell will not be able to withstand you. So you're 45 or 75. Doesn't matter. The issue is not your age. The issue is his fullness. People who are sent by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit are useful. And they're useful because they declare and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ over against lies. Our Father, I do pray that you will raise up from this band of believers more Pauls, more Paulettes. That there might be men and women who sense your tugging on their hearts and know and trust that if you have, if you have uh, directed and you have filled, then nothing else matters. That obedience is our only option. Immediate obedience. And for others, Father, who have come here, holding on to that which they conceived and concocted themselves, thinking that it was enough truth to usher them into heaven. Oh, God, destroy that on which they stand. It is nothing but sinking sand anyway. And might they find themselves planted on the rock of Jesus Christ. Might all of us build our homes, our spiritual edifices, on the rock. We ask it for Jesus' sake.